Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am your host, Dave Roberts, and today it is my pleasure to have as my guest, Emily Thoreau-Threat. Emily has had much experience with the grieving process, and through all of this, she learned to face love with life with love, optimism, and joy. Emily is an accomplished author. She has written the book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief, a comprehensive guide to reclaiming and cultivating joy and carrying on in the face of loss, which provides guidance for navigating the downs and ups of that unfamiliar territory. She felt something, however, was missing in the work she was doing, and through the inspiration of author Mercy Shimoff, she recognized the importance of helping people discover how allowing happiness to coexist with grief is essential. She created the popular podcast, Grief and Happiness, but she knew she wanted to do more. So to help provide comfort, support, love, and happiness to those dealing with grief and loss, she founded the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Emily has retired to the beautiful island of Maui in Hawaii after a rich and varied career of teaching, writing, owning, and operating businesses ranging from an ambulance comp company to a live theater to a school of arts and more. She spends her time now writing and teaching others how to deal with grief and loss, and she teaches happiness practices. And that, Emily, is just probably a fraction of the bio that I could have read, um, but those are the highlights. I know we're going to get into more and more of your background Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast. I am so happy to have you here today. And uh, how are things in Maui? I know you are recovering from a really devastating act of nature. How is the community holding up? And are they, are they con continuing to rebound from, from the tragedy that befell them? That's a, that's a big question. And I think the answer is we're doing the best we can. One thing that I love about Hawaii is their spirit of aloha, which is a spirit of love. Love is one of the main definitions of aloha. And we all have been helping each other out however we can. And there's lots of ways that we can. It, it was such a shocking, devastating thing to happen. And I know the, the morning that the fires started, the first one started very close to my home. And I live about half an hour or a little more than that away from Lahaina. So I'm not, I wasn't even that close to there, but the, there was a fire here and there were fires all over the island. We hear about the Lahaina fire, but there were many fires that, that happened at the same time. And I have an apartment in my house. I have a young woman who was living there who happened to be visiting the mainland. And she called me right away and she said that her good friends 
had to evacuate their house, which wasn't too far from here, and that they couldn't go to a shelter because there there were two of them and they had two dogs and two cats and they weren't willing to leave their animals behind and they couldn't take all those animals into the shelter with them. And so she said, if it was okay with me, she'd let them stay at her house since she was off island. So she did. And we had those visitors for over six weeks here with us. And their neighborhood, most of the houses burned to the ground. And there were a couple that, that didn't, and theirs happened to be one that didn't, but it was it was very affected by it. Lots of lots of damage was done, but they were ultimately able to go back to it and finish fixing it to a, a livable level. And they they were very grateful that they could do that. But that just gives an example of how, how it was all over. It, that everybody on the island was affected by it. All of us knew where uh, we knew people that were affected, or we meet people that were affected. And I know I've uh, bought clothes and line every once in a while. And so when I'm getting dressed, I go, oh, I got that line, and that store's not there anymore. And that's kind of, and it's, a, you know, there's not much left and and lying anymore, it it's truly is shocking. And there were literally thousands of people that don't have homes, and we didn't have a small island. We didn't have thousands of extra homes uh, for people to live in. So that's been quite a journey with having people uh, really needing someplace to be. And some of them were generational homes, kind of compounds where everybody lived together in a family and had for many, many years. And their whole compound is gone. And that that was part of the area that, that was burned. So we're, we're helping each other out. Uh, the people that used to visit Maui all the time kind of feel like they have mixed messages because right when the fire was happening, we asked, the people to leave who were visiting because we were very limited on resources like food for everybody. And it, some people haven't realized that it's okay to come back. And we lost a lot of the tourist things and hotels there in, in Lahaina, but we still have a lot of them that people aren't coming to. And so it's since tourism is the industry of the island it's that's devastating too to have the people not be here so there's all sorts of facets to it and and people just have a hard time even even talking about it because there are horrors that you just wouldn't believe but then we hear miracle things too i just talked to a woman the other day that i just met who she and her husband had to evacuate and it took off out of their, their place and their dog came out and they were going to go one direction because they thought that was the safest direction to go and the dog went the other way. And they felt like they had to chase their dog and get their dog, so they did. And shortly after that happened, the direction they would have gone was totally engulfed in flames. So their dog led them to safety. And that, I just think that's... That's a great story, and I try to focus, we try to focus on the positive things that happen. There's something called social consolidation in a community that occurs after 
after a tragedy of that magnitude where just members of the community come together out of love, out of aloha, um, out of compassion, and they bond together through their shared pain to, to, to try to, to regroup um, and to, uh, you know, to, to kind of gradually begin to re-engage in a world that is, that is different in a community that's been forever transformed. And the other thing that just strikes, strikes me is what happened in Maui and, and, and just other places where there's been catastrophic events that have affected communities is the, the grief that occurs on an individual level and a collective level. I mean, you look at the generational homes, you look at the tourist attractions, all that history has been, it was wiped out because of a fire. And it reminds me of a, of a, of a person that I once worked with when I was in the addictions field who lost his home during Hurricane Katrina. And I asked him, I said, can you conceptualize what that was like for me? And he looked at me and he said, Dave, it's like I, I lost my history. And he could never regain that again. He could never regain the pictures, the memorabilia, the traditions that were passed from generation to generation. And sometimes a lot of that gets overlooked when you look at, at uh, devastation that affects an entire community. I, I will keep Maui in my thoughts and my prayers that the community will continue to rebound, will continue to bond out of, out of uh, the, the spirit of aloha and eventually begin to re-engage in a, in a community that's going to be different. But at the same time, um, you know, we'll, hope, we'll hopefully um, be able to, as a community, develop meaning as a result of the challenges that, that have occurred. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. We all appreciate the way that uh, people from all over have responded to it because Maui's close to the hearts of many, many people who've mm -hmm. been here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people have been very generous, and and that's that's wonderful. But we've, we've got a long road ahead of us to to uh, rebuild. Yes, and um, as with grief, it's a gradual process to to begin to to work from the the raw pain of loss to reengage in in a life with purpose and meaning and and accept the fact that things are different, but yet you're still willing to re-engage anyway. Um, and that is always is a process. That's right. So getting to, to your background and story, tell our listeners about the experiences that have shaped your life path, your life choices. Oh, I, at my age, I've had so many experiences that have contributed to that. Um, I started dealing with, with death at a, a young age when my father traded our home for an ambulance company when I was 13. And uh, my mother wasn't happy about that, <laughs> you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And mom and dad and I ran the company 24-7. And it was just as I was going into high school. And it was all-consuming and kind of amazing and my mother's mother died the week we moved onto the company property and that was more grief there and then at that time you only had to be 14 years old and have an advanced first aid card to go on ambulance calls so when i was 14 on my birthday i went on my first ambulance call as an ambulance attendant and would do that any hour i was needed day or night while i was going to high school <laughs> so it, it was um 
quite the experience because we, we didn't have all the luxuries of things like paramedics and medications and radios in the ambulance and <laughs> all, all the things that we take for granted now. It was very primitive. So I, I learned a lot about the, the experience of having people literally die right in front of me many times. And that made me curious as, as to what's happening, you know, what's going on, how does this whole thing work? And I, it's, it's always kind of been there for me. And I went on to uh, different careers that some had to do with, with death and dying, including uh, working as a nurse to work my way through college to get my master's in, in English with a concentration in writing so I could teach writing. So I have lots of things like that. And then both of my husbands, ironically, died from the same thing. And this, the, my second one didn't, didn't have that illness that we knew of when we got together, and not for a few years, but it was the same thing. And they both uh, were, they had lots of physical challenges in the last two years of their lives. And so I spent the last two years of their lives with, with them pretty exclusively as opposed to doing anything else, working anyplace else. And I, I wouldn't change those years for me. I would love for them to have had more comfort, you know, to, to get through those years. But we became closer than we ever have been in, in both situations. And it was, uh, it was good to do. But we came to Maui two years before Ron transitioned because he'd lived here long before I knew him. And he always wanted to come back and, and live here. And when he realized that he didn't have that much time left to live someplace, this is where he wanted to be. So we came here and I, he lived for two years. And then I said, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> you know, they, talking about losing everything. I didn't really lose all the friends and, and possessions that I left behind when we moved across the ocean and, and that sort of a thing. But things were entirely different for me. I, I wasn't, I couldn't just go over to my friend's house that was on the mainland and it, it made me say, okay, now I have to figure out what my life's purpose is at this point in my life. Cause it's obviously different than it ever has been. And I don't know what that's going to be. So I spent, uh, a lot of time in consideration of that and in writing about it, not to share with anybody, just mostly journaling and figuring out the different things that would help me. And the more I did that writing, the more I could see I could help other people who were dealing with grief know how they could journal and write that would help them. And that's how I got started in the whole thing of helping other people uh, deal with grief and, and bringing comfort and support to them. Wow, that's quite a journey, and particularly with the multiple losses you've had. And I'm sure, Emily, you've dealt with individuals that have to have had multiple losses. And oh, I yeah. want, and one of the things that even if they may come to us with a specific loss that is really in their minds and in their hearts, the other losses that occurred before that time to affect it, particularly if they occur within a short period of time, 
How do you, what is your approach with individuals who have had multiple losses? Let's say they've had four catastrophic losses within five years. Where do you start? It's, that's interesting. I, I always start with anybody who is grieving, especially early in grief, and they ask me what they're supposed to do. They don't know what they're supposed to do. And I always tell them the first thing to do is self-care because that's the first thing to go when, mm -hmm. when people find themselves without their loved one. And uh, a lot of people eat too much or don't eat enough or they don't get out of bed or they don't bathe or they don't go out in public. They don't talk to people. There's all these things that they don't do that were part of their life that they did all the time before. And it's, it's interesting that you have to remind somebody to go take a shower, you know, mm -hmm. that that's, that's really important. Things like that can, can help people feel renewed in, in a way that, uh, if they're not taking care of themselves, they wouldn't be having the, the strength or energy to move forward. So especially when you've got that compounded grief where there's, there's many different things that, that happen at the same time. So many times I've heard about uh, couples that have been together forever and one of them dies and the other one wasn't sick but dies shortly thereafter because mm -hmm. they just don't know how to live without the other person. And then that leaves their family with this compounded grief where they, they're, they've lost their family structure. They've lost their parents. It's not just one. And that happens all the time. So the, the main thing that I think is, is great for people is to not try to do this on your own, mm -hmm. to not isolate, to not socially isolate, but find ways that you can talk to other people not necessarily a professional counselor. The work that I do is all all peer to peer. Uh, professional counselors are, are great. Uh, group meetings are great, but some kinds of group meetings work for some people and don't work for others. I know I wasn't excited about going to group meetings because my my vision of that was people that sit around and cry and sob about their story and they're not really communicating with the rest of the room. They're they're still just uh, showing their grief. Yeah. And I didn't feel like I could handle that to go into a situation like that. And then somebody invited me here on Maui to a death cafe. And I had no idea what that was, but I found out when <laughs> I went with her. And it turned out the way they did it here in Maui was they met at a Mexican restaurant outdoor on the patio and we'd eat nachos and drink cerveza and just talk about who we lost and Usually we had lots of fun stories. We'd laugh. We could support each other. We could cry. We'd do anything we needed to do, but it was so positive. And the, the good energy around it, it, it gave me strength. And I think that that's really important. Yeah, and I, I've, I know death cafes are, exist all over the United States, all over the world. And they have had a tremendous benefit to individuals who are grieving, not only for the support, but it gives individuals a safe place to talk about a topic that is not necessarily a topic that a lot of people are comfortable talking about. Emily, was the death cafe, was that where 
you got your inspiration to teach individuals the necessity of having grief and happiness coexist with each other? It, it was kind of part of the background that nurtured me on my way. But what, what really came to me was one individual that I dealt with uh, who was a, a good friend of mine on the mainland. We were family friends living a few blocks away from each other and had many memorable times together. And they were a lot younger than we were. And one of them, uh, the, the husband, died about seven months after my husband Ron died, just out of the blue. He wasn't sick. He didn't have anything. He wasn't like in a car accident. He was just on his way home from work in the car and apparently could sense what was going on and pulled over to the side of the road and died, just died. And I was so worried about my friend because I thought she's not prepared you know, at her age, she wouldn't have thought about what, what do I need to do if my husband dies? And I was, I was very concerned about that. And since I wasn't there where I could go over her house or do things for her physically, I decided that I would write her a letter or a card every week for the first year. And I decided if I was going to do that, I better make a list and see if I could come up with 52 different things to say. Because <laughs> that was a big commitment to write 52 different uh, letters to her. So when I finished that list, it didn't take me that long to get through with 52 really different things on that list. And as as a writer, I'd been teaching at the university level for many years. And I looked at that and said, this is an outline for a book. And when I realized that and I put that together with the things that I had been doing with journaling for myself and could see that it could help people, it all just kind of melded together and evolved into all the stuff that I'm doing now. And you're doing a, you're doing a lot. I, um, I, it's, when I was reading your bio, it was difficult for me to keep up with all the categories you've got. And, I always ask many of my guests who have had those type of categories, when do you sleep? How often do you sleep or do you sleep? You know, so, um, but, um, I, I'm a person that has a lot of categories too. And honestly, I wouldn't have it any other way. It, uh, inspires me. It gives me meaning and I meet a lot of great people along the way. And all of this occurred really as a result of the challenges with my, my old daughter, Janine's transition over 20 years ago. And the challenges with that enabled me to access another part of myself that was based in compassion, based in love, based in beneficence. I mean, I'd always had that, I believe, but it really just accelerated after my daughter's transition. Um, and it was either that or I'd crawl into the fetal position and be swept away and victimized by complicated grief. And um, my instinct to survive and the support of others around me prevented that from happening. So, and the other thing, I'm also a firm believer that if we can experience the full emotional spectrum that life has to offer, we become genuine and become enriched. I don't believe happiness by itself leads to that kind of fulfillment. I think it, I know it helps, 
to be content, but there's the other emotions that we can learn from. We can learn from our sadness. We can learn from our, um, our anger. We can learn from our, our moments of yearning. We can learn from guilt. It all has something to teach us, and it makes us genuine, authentic, and more human. And I think that genuineness can breed a more intense and a more authentic version of aloha. That's right. That's right. You know, uh, all of those things that you mentioned are, are like pieces of the puzzle. If, if you have one that's missing, your puzzle's not complete. And it's important to recognize when things like that go on. My, my times of sadness, I've, I've learned from. My times of mourning, I've, I've learned from. I can't say that I'm glad that anybody died or that glad that I'm sad, but I appreciate so much more when I feel better because I've been there. And I can honestly say, and people tend to be surprised when I say it, that I'm happier now than I ever have been. And it's because I've learned the difference between happiness and sadness, between yearning and having, between all these, these different uh, oppositional things. And I can choose now what I'm focusing on. And I feel so good when I'm helping somebody else and contributing to their well-being. And if, if I weren't, I, I think I'd be so much less of a person. It's very important to me to do that. I feel the same way as you do. And I tell my students this at Utica University. If somebody wants to tell you the story of one of the most intimate events in their lives, which is the death of a loved one, consider yourself to be blessed. Consider that to be a gift because not ever, they're not going to be willing to share that with everybody. Um, they're sharing that with you because they trust you're going to honor it. They trust you're going to create a sacred space to witness it. And they trust that you're, you're just simply going to be there for them for the long haul when they have to share that story over and over again. And every story we get is a gift and an inspiration to us. Every story that anybody is willing to share with us about the most tragic event of their lives or even the most happiest event of their lives is still a gift because they chose to share those intimate moments with us because they trusted that we would, we would honor that. And it's so important to pay attention to that. The people that I see that have the hardest time are people that have never been around somebody who died before. And some people get to being older and never having a friend or relative or parent or anybody die. I, it's, not often, I don't think, because it seems like we have so many deaths at so many different ages. But it it helps you if you've seen somebody else go through the experience or you've heard what somebody else goes through. And you can go, oh, I'm feeling that way and it's okay. Because I remember my friend told me that that's how they felt at the time. And otherwise, you might be going, oh, I'm the only one that ever felt like this, and I don't know what to do because nobody's going to understand. And I think that prevents a lot of individuals from sharing because they have this belief that they're alone in their grief that nobody else is going to understand. And I know for me, after, you know, shortly after my daughter Janine transitioned, I felt like I, I could have been in a group of people and still would have felt alone. And that's how disconnected I was from myself 
and the world around me. But the first parent, bereaved parent support group that I went to, I discovered there were 18 other parents in that room who experienced the same type of, of loss. And I felt less alone, obviously, because I realized, well, there's other people that are going through this. This sucks, but at least there's a group of individuals that can understand when I'm having a bad day, can understand what it's like to have experienced for a parent the worst tragedy imaginable. And that initial support really helped me in the, in the early phase of grief. Yeah, it, it will. I, and I wanted to, to say something about happiness, too, that happiness in the context that, that I use it is, is not something frivolous or going to a comedy show and laughing or that sort of a thing. But so many times we get in the, the rut when grieving of not smiling, of not realizing that there are things that you can be happy about and that it's okay and when we have our, our weekly gatherings that we have for the Grief and Happiness Alliance, we always write about something. Uh, and then we break into breakout groups. So they're small groups and everybody gets a chance to talk. And the, the groups, the whole session only lasts for an hour. So that we're not talking about somebody starting to talk and running on and on and on. But. I, I always see by the end of the group that everybody's smiling before they leave. Mm -hmm. And it's because I, I believe that it's because they see I'm not the only one going through this and it's, it's okay to do something positive and it's okay to feel good about taking care of myself. And that interpersonal connection is, is so important. And it, it's the people that don't allow that, that have, have the most trouble that they, they don't talk to anybody else or they don't listen to anybody else. They, they choose to be alone. And, you know, for me, Emily, that type of interpersonal connection, being connected to something that is greater than ourselves is something that to me is a key component of spiritual growth. And if we can recognize that as one of the unanticipated blessings of dealing with catastrophic loss, realizing that there can be spiritual growth, that we can be connected to something greater than ourselves, that we do, we realize that we can re-engage in a life that is fulfilled, that has many moments of happiness, and that we can be, have permission to express all of our authentic emotions. All of that, just being a part of that type of support group, to me, is, is very powerful. It really is. It it takes the takes the sting away. I know I went to one group that actually the, the same people that put on the Death Cafe put on this group where we would just talk about things that were related to, to death in particular. And that kind of normalized the conversation. People who hadn't talked about that um, had a harder time with it. But uh, one, one night, uh, a woman came and she said, you know, I've got something that I've been diagnosed as being terminal. I'm probably on my way out. And I don't know what to do about a funeral because I don't want that to be uh, a burden on anybody. And I'd like to do what I can now. And then we went around the room and everybody shared something about, well, this is what so-and-so did or, or this is uh, 
what helped me when my parent died or, or whatever it is. And it was all different information. Nobody was saying, do this, or you have to do that. But they were giving the person all, all kinds of information. And, and by the, the end of that discussion, that person said, thank you so much. I feel like I can go home now and plan it out and talk to my family and say, this is what I want. And this is how it's going to be. And then that takes that burden off of me. I don't have to think about that anymore. And I think when we give information as opposed to saying, well, this is what you should be doing, because I hear so many individuals in grief really complain about that, that tell people, oh, this is where I should be in my grief. Well, where is that? Or this is what I should be doing. This is how I should be grieving. If we give information that they can choose to decide what it is they want to do with that, and even if they decide to do nothing with it, it's still empowering. Mm -hmm. And we, we need to, as much as possible, in addition to happiness, promoting that. And I want to ask you in a, in a bit about the happiness practices that you teach. But we also have to empower individuals to make choices, to allow them to be co-creators with the universe of the reality that they choose to live in after loss. Not shoulds or you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Here's some information. How does it apply to you? Where, where can this fit in your life right now? That's right. I, since I focus on writing a lot, they say there's certain words I really want you to just delete from your vocabulary. <laughs> and it's going to improve your writing and help you a whole lot more if you don't uh, should on yourself. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. just, just eliminate that word from your vocabulary. And it's hard for people, you know. <laughs> There, there are a few words like that that it's just hard for them to let go of. But when they do, they find that they're making uh, better choices or good choices about what they're focusing on and what they, they learn from what they're writing or doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and for me, you know, another word that I've eliminated is, is if something happens to me. I don't say if anymore. It's going to be when I die, not if I die. Because... The inevitability is that I'm only going to be in, in the physical existence for a set period of time. And then as I tell my students or anybody else, I'll be dancing in another dimension when it's, mm -hmm. my, when it's my time here is over. And my life will continue, albeit in a, in a, in a, different, in a different form and in a different form of energy, maybe with different roles. It's just a matter of when the good Lord, the Creator, it said, Dave, your mission on earth is over. It's done. We're ready for you. Not that I'm in any hurry for that to happen because I think I still have a lot of work to do, as I know you do. Um, but whenever it happens, I'll be ready. And I actually feel like that now. I think through all the works that I'm doing, I'm, I'm okay when, when it's time, it's time. I know my mother-in-law always said, if I die. And we tried so hard to convince her to not do that. And she goes, no, it's if I die. Because she said, I'm not going to focus on dying. So we just let her say it. And she said it till she died. Yeah. It always said, if I die. So it's um, whatever you say or whatever you do, make it be a conscious decision to do what's going to serve you best, mm -hmm. whatever that is. And... Like one of my things that, that I did for years and finally 
realized uh, I was doing and when I was able to break the habit made a huge difference for me was I'd always say, if only, like, if, if only I got that job, if only I met that person, if only I had this much money, if only I could buy that, whatever it was. And when I just eliminated those, those using those two words like that, it made a huge difference for me because I realized how much I actually did have mm -hmm. and what good shape that I actually was in and that I didn't need to focus on that. And if I I saw that there was something that would serve me. And like I, I changed my majors a couple of times when I was at, at the university. And that was okay because it led me on the path that I moved into instead of feeling like I was obligated to do something that I felt like I had committed to. Mm -hmm. And I think my life turned out ever so much better because I allowed myself to do that. Instead of saying, if, if only I got to this point where I was doing this career, that didn't help. No, and I think one of the things, and I, I've struggled with this, you know, on many occasions in my life is trying to impose my will on spirit's plan. And then spirit will meet me either with deafening silence or the, what I want to do doesn't reap any results. So what I've learned to do more and more gradually in my life is just understand that spirit's plan for me is probably greater than the plan I have for myself and to allow that to unfold. But that requires a giant leap of faith. And for many individuals, particularly with their, with their histories of trauma, history of loss, and particularly complicated loss or, or repeated loss, that's, that's very challenging. It can be attained, but we have to throw traditional time frames out the window and realize that it's going to take as long as it's going to take to get to that point where you put your, your trust in the divine plan and realize that um, that's the way to go. Yeah, that, that's right. It, and it, it's for those who haven't done that yet, you've got something to look forward to for when you do. Right? That's right. It, it feels so much better and uh, allows you a sense of freedom that you wouldn't have if you're living a way that you feel you're prescribed to do that isn't necessarily what you want to do or what would would be best for you to do and it's allowed me to learn so many things that i didn't know anything about before and to be open to new information and new experiences mm -hmm. and we can only do that in stillness we can only yes. do that when we just let our mind's quiet and just love whatever's going to unfold, unfold. Mm -hmm. So I, I mentioned earlier about happiness practices. What kind of happiness practices do you teach individuals who request your services? You know, it's different every time. And I have uh, discovered that I believe that, that I am being guided in, in what I'm teaching and what I'm doing. Because every, every week we have a, a gathering and we all give them something to write on. And it's, it doesn't necessarily have the word grief in the topic or anything like that, but it, it applies to how they're living or what they're doing and how it can relate. I can give you an example of one that we did a couple of weeks ago was I said, um, 
plan to write a children's book about grief, however you want to approach it, what would you say in that book to a child? And they had to consider things like how, what age group were they appealing to, uh, what kinds of things that they thought were important for a child to know to help them best deal with the concept of somebody dying. And boy, it led to fascinating conversations. And I've got people from the group that are actually working on their children's book because it inspired them so much to take that topic and, and run with it because they could see how looking through a child's eyes or looking at what would serve a child help them with what they wanted to know and didn't realize that they, they needed to consider. So in each, each time it's different. We're in the process right now. We've developed a, a facilitator training program because right now I'm, I am the facilitator for the group. And we've got some members of our group that, that step up like if I need a Sunday off or the, the day of the class off for some reason or um, it, just because somebody else has something that they really want to share. And so we have that, but what, what we would like to do, because we're an international group, we have people that come from different places around the world. We want to have facilitators in different time zones so that we can serve more people. Because right now at the most recent time zone, our person who was attending from Saudi Arabia said, I'm sorry, I just can't stay up till 11 o'clock at night and go to come to the group and then go to work the next morning. Because that's when it ended up being, even though it's in the morning for me here, it's earlier in the morning, uh, the, the time doesn't work. So we're, we're it's this program that we're developing is so awesome. We're just in the process of going through a pilot program with it. And to do that, I've been going back and writing down all the writing topics that I've had and all of the happiness practices that I've taught, what, whatever it is. And... I, they're all different. I didn't repeat myself. And that just kind of blows me away because we've been doing this for two years now, once a week, and I, I'm not repeating myself with any of it. And it's very creative on, uh, from my end, but the, the people that come just, just love it. They just uh, have such good things to say about it because it helps them so much. And about what the happiness practices are in particular, um, after Jacques died, my first husband who died, um, he, I ran across the book Happy for No Reason by Mar Marcy Shymoth. And it was an international bestseller. Um, that she actually had three international bestsellers on the New York Times list at the same time. And she was the first person to do that, to have three books on that list at the same time. And I don't know if anybody's broken that record since then, but that's pretty amazing. Yeah, and that the, is. Yes, the, the happiness book that, that she wrote, um, she, she said she was born depressed. <laughs> she just was not a happy child growing up and everything was sad and... I, I think of Eeyore, an Eeyore yeah. sort of person. And she wanted to find out about this concept of happiness. So she started interviewing people and she interviewed people, interviewed people all over the world, uh, people that were considered to be happy people. And she interviewed a hundred of them before she wrote this book. 
And then in the book, she shared all that she had learned about what, what happiness is, how it works, uh, what you can, different things that you can do that will lead mm -hmm. to more happiness in your life. And it's, it's full of information that's just really good. And after Ron died and I was working on doing all this other thing, I, I'd already uh, written my first grief book. I'd, I'd written college textbooks before, but I'd written my first grief book. And I was uh, teaching the writing, just writing classes online to write through grief. But I kept feeling like there was something that was missing. And I ran across something about Marcy online and I said, that's it. That's what's missing is the happiness component. And I discovered that she had a training program so that you could be a happy for no reason certified trainer. And when I looked into it, what she did with this training program, they weren't, she wasn't teaching you how to be teacher specific class in happiness. It wasn't that. She was giving you all the tools that she learned in this whole research that she had done on happiness that you could use however you wanted to for whatever you wanted to use them on. And that just worked out perfectly for me to fold that into what I was doing and, and create the Grief and Happiness Alliance at that time. And she's, she's thrilled with it. I've interviewed her a few times since then, and she's, she's just so tickled that I, I did something like this. Nobody else was doing that. People weren't mm -hmm. putting grief and happiness together. But by doing that, uh, the, the people smile at the meetings. At the end of the meetings, people are smiling every time. And that just feels really good. And people are happy about sharing with each other and happy, happy about looking at things differently than they ever thought that they could before. So that's how the, the happiness kind of is woven into this. Now, the Grief and Happiness Alliance, you, is this an online community, an in-person community, both? Both. It's, it's a combination of that. As I said, we're international. We have people that come from Australia, New Zealand. I, had, I was, I think, Tokyo. One person came from Tokyo. Um, Lots of people come from Canada. Several people come from England. The person from Saudi Arabia, Sweden, Italy. Um, they they come from all over the place, and, and the bulk of them come from from the U.S. But there, there, it's a it's a variety of people. It's not one person in particular, and and because of that, we kind of have to do that part on Zoom. Anything that we do with all the different people, so mm -hmm. we. I've been working on developing an online presence however we can, like with my podcast and me being on other people's podcasts and uh, cooperating with other uh, organizations that are dealing with grief. It, it, what, whatever they can do there just really helps. But uh, as far as on ground, I am working right now with an organization here on the island on Maui who provides peer grief services for children and they meet on a regular basis and I, I went to them and said with everything that's happened on our island now not only are the kids in those families dealing with grief but their parents are too in one way or another and I said how about if we 
while they when they bring the kids to have their sessions because they meet in groups and do art projects and do all kinds of good stuff that that help them do something to help the parents and do our grief and happiness practices with parents each time that they come so we're we're working on putting that together and when that's successful because i know it's going to be then, mm-hmm. then we can replicate that once we get more facilitators too we too we can replicate that wherever we've got a facilitator and an opportunity to work and it doesn't have to be with parents of grieving children it could be with uh families of people who are in a skilled nursing facility mm-hmm. it could be because there there are a million different kinds of grief and loss. Yeah. It doesn't have to be somebody dying. It it can be loss like the people in Lahaina who lost all their personal possessions. You know, it, it, it could be any kind of thing like that that this sort of uh, process can really help with. Yeah, I mean, you can have symbolic loss that, that is so inherent to, to tragedies uh, like Maui and, and other other parts of the world that have experienced other catastrophic events in their community. It could be the loss of a part of themselves. It could be a person who was healthy and then becomes disabled due to an accident. So yeah, grief comes in many different kinds of forms and we need to acknowledge that. The other thing is that the skills that individuals develop working through grief that was not related to death could also be very helpful to those, to those losses they experience that are due to death. And that's something that I think, um, I think we, we all need to be, be mindful of. So, so Emily, give our listeners, our viewers, one or two takeaways from your life experiences that can help them effectively navigate their life challenges. Oh, I can, I can do that. I have two in particular, two things, and I do them all the time. One of them is the first thing I do in the morning is journal. And I have a, a process that I use that works for me of certain things that I, I put in there every day. And it it lifts me up. I do it before I get out of bed in the morning. I just sit up in bed and, and get my journal out and do all these things in it. And two of the things on there are the other two takeaways. One of them is every day I write at least three things that I'm grateful for. And it doesn't, I, I don't just say I'm grateful for my house. I say, I'm grateful for the beautiful place that I live because, and fill in the blanks, because the the more you can put in it, the more you can appreciate whatever it is that you're writing about. And the other thing that I write in there, for sure, every day, along with other things too, is to put something that brought me joy the day before. Because a lot of times, something will happen that that did bring you joy, and you just kind of you kind of flow through it and don't really pay attention to it. But when you're keeping track of what brings you joy, you can go, "Wow, you know, I I really have a good life. I'm I have all these things that I'm grateful for. I'm, there's things that that make me happy that are are just wonderful. And the the joy things can be really simple. Like one of my neighbors uh, called me the other day and she said. Uh, I made some brownies. I'm on my way to work, but they're sitting on my stove. If you want to go in and get some, <laughs> hey, and that that brought me joy, you know, just just that she would think of me and that we're comfortable enough to go in and out of each other's houses, and that's something that we do in our neighborhood on on Maui. It's not not unusual. So when when you when you write about things, so journaling, 
when you recognize what you're grateful for in the depth of that gratitude and when you recognize that you actually are having things every day that bring you joy. Yeah, and sometimes uh, in early grief, we tend to lose sight of things that bring us joy. We tend to forget about gratitude. Even in the worst day in the, your life, you can write, find one or two things that you're grateful for. Like, I, I like the fact that you said journal about it because that's one of the things I encourage individuals to do is keep a gratitude journal. You see that, you know, my life isn't as bad and there are many gifts within even the worst days. So. As I have uh, actually right, right here next to me, this box that's, you can't tell on the screen, pretty big box that I'm teaching a class and, and um, journaling for the holidays. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to show them the kinds of things that I journal about. I've got a box of different journals. And they're not just the journals that I write in every day, but they're for different reasons, like it, for gratitude or, or all kinds of, of different mm -hmm. things. And they were surprised at all the different things that they could write about. But it, it's fun for me. I, and I can think of, oh, that would be really good to put in my happiness journal. Mm -hmm. And I, I set that one up as kind of a challenge for me where I put at the, I use the composition books that that you can get i can get them for 50 cents a piece when it's back to school yeah time. yeah yeah so i'll get a, a case of them at a time and i i wrote on the pages um it, letters the letters of the alphabet and then i went through saying what made me happy that started with the letter a or b or so i'll be thinking and go oh i can put that in q because i didn't have one for that yet <laughs> and so i'm constantly on the lookout for things that, that make me happy. And another thing I did was um, I started writing about reasons that it was when Ron was still here with me, uh, the reasons that I loved him. And I, mm -hmm. I decided I was going to write down a hundred, hundred reasons that I loved him. Mm -hmm. And I got a little journal that was it, a real pretty little journal. It had a heart on the outside of it and it, it had 50 double-sided pages in it. And so I wrote one on every one of those pages and I gave it to him for Valentine's Day. And it was like his favorite gift he ever got for anything, you know, because <laughs> it, uh, it was truly from the heart. It wasn't something where you just went to the store and spent some money on something. And it, it helped me uh, with our relationship, appreciate him that much more because I could really see. And if you think about it, a hundred things is a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. It is a lot. That it was, it was a really good exercise for me to write it down. So I, I, that's why I have all these journals is because the more you write down, the more it serves you. And I think the more we can look back on our progress, you know, as it goes from mm -hmm. the early phase of grief to the, to the later phase of grief. And we, we can look back and, and, you know, see the path that we took, see the, the bumps in the road, but also see, you know, see some of, some of the, the things that brought us gratitude. Emily, if people want to get in touch with you, find out more about what, they, what you do, what's the best way for them to do that? Go to griefandhappiness.com. And there's, there's a bunch of stuff on there. That's the website for the Alliance. And there's also, there's information about me on there too, but more for me is my other one from my first book called Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. And that website is lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com. 
and there's there's a lot of information there and you can go on Amazon and order either one of those books or order my new cards that I have uh here they are I took those 52 things that I wrote to my friend mm -hmm. and she always was telling me you've got to publish that it was so good it helped me so much and so I finally got it published and it's in in a box set like this and it's it's thick but it has on on one side of every one there's something that uh this one is what's right for you that's that's what this one is and you can pull out a different one and it'll be different every time and on the other side there's a picture of something beauty beautiful in nature that i took here in mm -hmm. maui because i love to take pictures here all the time so there's lots of different pictures that you can look at look at with that and you can use these any way you want to you can pull out one a week and put it on your desk or wherever you are and just focus on that for the week. Or you can pull out one when you feel like you need some support. So you just pull out one and see what it says and it'll be different. And uh, I also think it's a, a really good bereavement gift instead of flowers mm -hmm. that die, give them something that's going to last them forever. But it isn't like a solid book. Like I like you to give my books for bereavement gifts too, <laughs> but this is, is a really good one that you're not expecting a whole lot from the person to say sit down and read this so that that's the other thing and that's also on amazon the grief and happiness cards well the other thing too i think pulling a card that kind of speaks to you or that your energy is drawn to helps us develop our intuition too mm -hmm. yeah and that in turn helps us develop greater spiritual awareness which i think to me is a key for working through any type of loss or tragedies Heavily, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I, I truly enjoyed our time together, and I, we ought to do this again sometime. That sounds great. I'm always happy to, to talk to you. And likewise. And with that, that is a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode, and please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.